All right, show of hands. Who has now in their possession, I mean, not literally here in the building, but at home, or has ever owned a toy sword, a shield, a helmet, any, any such thing? Nunchucks? Okay. So I do too. I own three of Zeke Trainum's wooden swords and a wooden shield made by Darren Woodward. Now, these get regular use in our house. See, when we lived in England, our Saturday spot was the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. And it didn't matter what uh, display they had on. If it, yeah, Degas, I don't care. Sarcophagi, what's that? We always went to the same place. Arms and armor. The wall had been studded to the hilt. No? Okay. It had been studded to the hilt with broadswords and rapiers, parrying daggers and shields, helmets, gauntlets, mail skirts, and breastplates. Now that is the kind of place where your imagination runs away with you. You could see our, our older two children's minds flitting away to thoughts of adventure and danger. They were instantly in The Hobbit. It warmed them up for the backyard battles that we still have with those wooden swords and wooden shield, slashing and parrying and jumping and shouting and then perishing flamboyantly when I landed the deadly blow. As a child, I would have found that room magical. My kids did. But as an adult, my experience was different. As a grown man, I, I found it difficult to examine a notched sword edge or a dented breastplate without imagining that sword sustaining that injury in my hand or that breastplate buckling under blunt force on my chest. You know, a child sees the gleam of the armor, but the adult imagines what it must have been like for a person on the day of battle to actually strap such things on. To them, that armor wouldn't have seemed shiny or indestructible at all. It would have felt like a thin metal veil between life and death. So in our reading from Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul shows us he's also got something to say about armor. But this is an armor that we can rely on in the battle. In verse 10, we saw last week, Paul's just told us that we are to be strong in the Lord. And now this morning in verse 11, he goes on to show how we're to be strong in the Lord. We are to put on the whole armor of God. So what I want to do this morning is help us to understand what the armor of God is, to trust in its strength and to receive it in our lives. And I want to do that by making four observations that flow out of this phrase, the whole armor of God. We get it. It's, it's Paul's clear point from verses 11 to verse 13. He says it twice at either end of that little section. So I want to make four observations. Number one, everyone needs this armor. We will perish without it. Number two, it's not just any armor that we need. It's a particular kind of armor. Number three, once we get this armor, it's got to be used in particular ways. Its, it's use is governed by certain conditions. And then finally, fourth, once we acquire this armor, once we understand how to use it, it must be kept in constant use. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Look with me at verse 11. Okay, first, whatever this armor is, the first point is simply that we need it. Now, you, you might think, the, the war analogy, it might lead you to think that this armor is, uh, is not 
essential. It's a neutral thing. You might think, I'm fine without this armor because I'm not fighting the battle that you Christians are fighting. I'm, I'm just watching from the sidelines. I'm, I'm fine. Like a student said to me years ago, yeah, Christianity may be true, but I'm just, I'm just going to whatever it until I'm older. Well, maybe we could get away with casual neutrality to Jesus Christ, except for Paul, we're not just neutral. We're naked. And that's bad news because the battle isn't something that we opt into. It's a reality, the Bible says, for every human being. When Paul calls the Christians in Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God, this is a pretty strong church, pretty good Church of the Incarnation type church. He's not calling these people out of neutrality. He's calling them to address their nakedness in the midst of a raging battle. And we can see this if we ask what the armor actually is. What's this protection without which a person is guaranteed to be overcome by the world, enslaved to our own disordered desires, and devoured by Satan? Well, the armor, quite simply, is Christ. Paul is, Paul's using the language of armor in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to put on Christ? Well, it means, as Paul says elsewhere, that we're putting on a new self, the new self. It means that this armor that Paul's talking about, it doesn't just protect us externally. It's not a thin metal veil between life and death. When we put on Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 24, we're putting on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, by putting on Christ, this armor doesn't merely defend us from threat on the outside. It covers us inwardly from threat on the inside. Now, notice the implication. If putting on Christ is to be clothed with Christ, then those who are not so clothed are not in a position of mere neutrality but a state of nakedness. And that spiritual nakedness, the Bible says, it's the state of every person who has not actively, consciously, personally put on Christ. If you're not in Christ, Paul says, you're not neutral with God. You're not clothed with friendship, knowledge, power, or holiness but with alienation, ignorance, impotence, and sin. Now, each of those four contrasts uh, is an aspect of the, of the kind of nakedness Paul says we're in. So I just want to tease that out quickly, okay, before we move on. So the, the first, if you're not in Christ, you're not clothed with friendship, but with alienation. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So far from being friends with God, you're in fact alienated from him. That's not neutrality. Secondly, if you've not put on Christ, you're not clothed with knowledge, but with ignorance. Those are, those are the kinds of terms that the Bible uses. Ephesians 5 verse 8, Paul says to these great Christians in Ephesus, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice that Paul doesn't say you were in the dark, but rather you were darkness. Spiritually speaking, sin has gouged out our spiritual eyes. And like Jesus healing the, the man born blind, we don't need something that we once had but have since lost. 
or just need augmented or amplified. We need Jesus to come and to create in us afresh something that we don't have. To receive that spiritual sight, we've got to acknowledge, thirdly, this is the third thing I want to tease out. We've got to acknowledge, thirdly, that apart from Christ, we're impotent. We're utterly powerless to restore what we've lost. This is Paul's point in Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. We're alienated from God, spiritually blind, and utterly powerless to do anything about it. Which leads to that fourth and final thing I want to tease out about this state of nakedness. By nature, we're strangers to God, we're ignorant of Him, we're impotent to be reconciled to Him, and why? Because we have befriended our sin. Now, you may be apart from Christ, and you may recognize the power and pattern of these destructive, this destructive force, these destructive habits in your life that the Christians around you might call sin. You may even hate that destructive pattern. And you might be seeking to fight it. What I'm saying is that apart from Christ, you can battle those destructive habits, but you will only be fighting to wound, never to kill. Your fight with sin will be like a fencing match designed to satisfy the spectators, you know, to get your spouse off your back, your friends off your back, maybe your conscience off your back. But in fact, fencing is, it's a form of friendship. It's done among friends. It's not designed to sever the bond between the combatants. It's a form of recreation. Apart from Christ, that's what the fight with sin is. And that, those four contrasts there, I hope that gives you some idea of this state of nakedness that Paul's talking about. Not friendship, but alienation. Not knowledge, but ignorance. Not power, but impotence. Not freedom from sin, but friendship with sin. That's our nakedness, because of which, Paul says, if we do not put on the whole armor of God, we will never survive the spiritual battle. <gasps> okay, one thing you need to know about this sermon, it's designed like a pyramid. It's real big at the bottom, and then each of the points gets smaller as we go. Okay. Now, this leads to a second point. We need the armor, yeah, but we need a particular kind of armor. We need the armor of God, and it must be of God in two ways. It's got to be armor of God's willing and armor of God's working. So first, armor of God's willing. In other words, it's got to be the armor that, that God has appointed, that he wills. It's got to be forged on his authority and none other. So, so I, I love being an Anglican. We're rooted in the great tradition, right? We, we love our historic Christian devotion. That's a pretty Anglican thing. But we've got to be careful lest we confuse these good gifts which have come about by human institution with the armor that's prescribed by divine institution. It's not any armor. It's not human armor. It's the armor of God, the armor forged by divine authority that makes the saint strong. So it's not that human armor is bad. It's just that it's weak. So it can be like that dented breastplate that I mentioned earlier. Can, you know, you get smashed with a, you know, Sauron's mace, you know, and that good thing that we've contrived with the best of intentions to protect us, it can become bent. And like a smashed breastplate that can actually harm us when it's driven concave into our chests. So these good humanly contrived things, they can actually harm us when substituted for the armor that God has devised for us. In the general thanksgiving at the end of morning and evening prayer, there's this lovely line, we thank God for the means of grace, for the hope of glory. What I'm saying is that God has appointed means of grace and we mustn't reject those. By the preaching of his word, the Bible, God reveals his character to us. 
by means of bread and wine, when they're received by faith, he communicates the benefits of Christ's saving death to us. By water and the power of the Spirit, he, he, we're, we're born again to a new life of prayerful obedience to our Father. These are his appointed means of grace. So I want to ask a question, and, and I'm not digging on anybody in our church. I'm asking, I'm just looking out into our country and asking a question about the state of the church. How is it that so many Christians now feel no need to return from isolation and receive these means of grace? How, is, it that, is it really that, we've, that I got locked in a house for months and months with my spouse and my kids, and I'm somehow now morally perfect? Like, I just made it through that whole thing. Are we not wrestling with sin? Is Satan not daily discouraging us and seeking to discredit Christ? See, I'm afraid that in isolation, many are becoming like Naaman. God tells him to go bathe in the Jordan, and he throws a fit. And he says, no, just send out someone to wave their hand and cure me, or surely I could have gone and bathed in these rivers. Well, God has given us his preached word. He's given us bread and water and wine. Why should I receive those? Surely other means of grace would do. Means of grace that don't require me to come out of isolation, to be in fellowship with other Christians. Well, other means may do for lighter battles. But if you're following Jesus into the battle to which he calls us, then weak armor, like that dented breastplate, it's more likely to harm you than to save you. You must have the armor that God wills. But it's also got to be, secondly, armor of God's working. It's got to be the armor that God himself works what I mean is, if you pray, if you fast, if you give, any way that you obey God, if it's not God who's working your prayer, working your fasting, working your obedience, then it's not the whole armor of God. Our obedience is no armor unless our obedience flows from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the, the diagnostic question I, I just want to ask here is how do I know if the discipline, my obedience, uh, the ways that I'm, that I'm seeking to follow the Lord in my life, how do I know that that's of God's working? I mean, really simple diagnostic question is just look downstream. Do you see the tangible evidence? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Has your growth and discipline made you a more patient person or more peaceful or, or kinder or more faithful? If not, then it raises a question mark. Is this of God's working? The armor God requires must be the armor he supplies. It's the armor of his working by his spirit. Okay, third point, it's even shorter, okay? Now, it's got to be the armor. We all need it. It's got to be a particular armor, the armor of God. But here's the third thing. It's got to be the whole armor of God. We can't just put on part of it. It's got to be the complete get-up. Now, the Greek has only one word here, and it's the word to, to translate. You know, we say the whole armor, or in some of the older translations, the complete armor. In Greek, it's one word, and it's the word from which we get panoply. It means something in context like armed to the teeth, outfitted with every weapon. The armor of God, then, it's got this indivisible unity. It's got to be whole or complete. So our armor, I just want to 
point out three little implications of this for us. What does it mean for our armor to be whole or complete? Well, first, it means it's got to be whole in the extent of its coverage. Just to put that very simply, it means it's got to cover all of us. It's no good to sort of go, I'm going to disciple my eyes. I'm not going to watch Game of Thrones. And then to go to work and to be the worst about leaving gossip unchallenged. And you just drink it in with your ear. You can close down your eyes. Satan will get into your ears. It's no good to be like David, right? He refuses to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed, but he's got a weakness for women on rooftops. We can't do that. The extent of the coverage has got to be whole. It's got to cover everything. Because listen, if you are aware of a chink in your armor, I promise you Satan is already aware of it too. Now the armor's got to be whole in a second sense. It's got to cover everything, but it's got to be whole in the sense that we use all of it. It's got to be complete, completely in use. It's a panoply, right? This indivisible chain of weapons. There's a unity to it. So we've all witnessed the public downfall of these prominent Christian leaders, or we've seen people that we regarded as mature Christians in our own life make damaging decisions and abandon the faith. And we see in these moments of failure that the armor our friends were wearing, it just simply turns to sand. Very often, what's happening there is that our friends had adopted components of the Christian armor and rejected others. One can be a profoundly knowledgeable man who lacks self-control. One can be a steadfast woman who lacks brotherly affection. One can have great faith, but little love. And to the extent that we tolerate these lacks, that we rely on one grace to cloak the absence of another, then we too are wearing armor of sand. The armor of God is a panoply. It's only whole when every grace is brought together into a complete suit. And by the way, keep in mind that when Paul is saying, he's calling you to put on this armor, you're putting on Christ. This isn't something that we do in our strength. He equips us to use this armor. Okay, third thing about this wholeness. The armor's got to be whole in the sense that every piece must be pressed toward perfection. That is to say, every grace we receive, we're responsible for pressing toward Christ-likeness. Because the gifts that we have, the gifts that God gives us, they're subject to decay. Maybe God blessed me with the the gift of self-control when I was 15. But if I'm not pressing that toward Christ-likeness, then He has not guaranteed me to hold on to that gift when I'm 50. The world, the flesh, and the devil push too hard on us to remain in a state of neutrality without effort. It takes sweat for the Christian just to stay where we are. I don't mean to sound bleak about that. That's a triumph. Now, I want to... um, just a couple of quick points of application here on this third thing. I, I want to caution the mature Christians among us to remember that maturity in the faith, which is a wonderful biblical idea, is not the same as perfection. The idea that we attain to, to perfection, to utter Christ-likeness in this life, I, I think is a pernicious idea. It, it's, it's like we're just beginning to get our shoulder uh, into the process of leaning into Christian obedience and suddenly... 
our legs get cut out from under us. Even in maturity, and there is such a thing as Christian maturity, even in maturity, we must continue pressing every piece of our armor toward perfection. Now, second little point of application is for those of you who feel your weakness very much and find this discouraging. If that's you, I want to encourage you that God has done an infinitely powerful and great thing in bringing you to faith. One of my 17th century heroes said that the gap between weak grace and strong grace is infinitely narrower than the gap between any grace and no grace at all. He's done a mighty work in bringing you to know him. And remember that the divine warrior, the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus, when he describes his own heart in the one place where he does this, he describes himself as humble and lowly. So if you're feeling weak in the battle, Jesus, he knows your heart. And he will supply your need. You can endure in the battle in your weakness because your weakness keeps you relying on the strength of your armor. Now, one last point, and it's very simple, very short. Once you put on the whole armor of God, you must use it constantly. Like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, we wear the armor of God to the end from the moment that we acquire it. Remember, putting on God, Paul says, it's putting on the new self. It's not something that's accidental to our true identity. Like deep down, there's the real me, and then I put on Jesus. When we put on the armor of God, we are literally putting on the new self, and that means adopting a new role in the drama of creation. A new identity, a new center. What I'm saying very simply is that when we put on Christ, it changes everything. We gain a new identity as the people of the king who conquered by the cross. And we become, and this is Paul's point in the thesis statement of Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, the church become the hands and feet of Jesus. Towards the end of Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's book, Prince Caspian, Peter, one of the Pevensey children, the high king of Narnia, he has squared off in combat against the usurper, King Miraz. Now, Prince Caspian is a different book than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we get to the stone table, right? It's, it's, it's Aslan's cross. And in that book, Aslan goes straight to the battle and devours the white witch himself. And I'm sorry, spoiler alert, you really all should have read this by now. I, <laughs> I maintain the right to ruin all of the Chronicles of Narnia, so go read. Um, Prince Caspian is different. In Prince Caspian, Aslan has not, at least not yet, descended into the battle with his people. And this is intentional on Lewis's part. He's showing that on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the stone table, Aslan's victory appears, at least until his coming again, in the faithfulness of his soldier, Peter. So at one point in the battle, Miraz stumbles. And rather than stab Miraz in the back, Peter steps back. He lets him recover. And his younger brother Edmund complains, Bother, bother, bother. Need he be so gentlemanly as that? I suppose he must. Comes of being a knight and a high king. I suppose it is what Aslan would like. 
Do you see what Lewis is doing? Before Aslan returns to set all to rights, his presence is manifested in a war-torn creation by the faithfulness of his people. Peter has become the hands and feet of Aslan, manifesting Aslan's wise rule and pointing forward to his coming again, as indeed Aslan will soon come again before the end of that book. So be like Peter and looking forward to the day when the king sets all to rights, put on the whole armor of God and fight courageously until he comes again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.